Welcome to the Australian Naval History podcast series for the second of two episodes on Australian Navy codebreaking during the Second World War. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia, and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Commander Alastair Cooper. In both world wars, the Royal Australian Navy made a significant contribution to the Allied war effort through its work in breaking enemy coded signals and analysing their signal traffic. The Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne, or Frumal, made a significant contribution to Allied operations through the South Pacific. But it was not an easy task, as the Australian, British and United States navies had markedly different approaches to the collection and management of intelligence information. Moreover, there were some strong idiosyncratic personalities at many levels whose conduct had a big impact on how very discreet organisations were run. To tell us more, I'm joined via Skype by Dr Ian Fenigworth, a former naval officer and communications specialist who has written a number of books on Australian naval history, including the biography of the codebreaker Captain Eric Nave. And here with me in the studio, Dr Joe Streisack, whose PhD dissertation was the REN's cryptographic work. Mr Craig Colley, the author of Codebreakers, Inside the Shadow World of Australia's Two Bletchley Parks, Bletchley Park being the name of Britain's famous codebreaking centre in World War II, and Vice Admiral Peter Jones, author of Australia's Argonauts, which in part describes the lives of two of the major figures in the RAN codebreaking effort, Commander Rupert Long and Commander Jack Newman. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Ian Fennigworth, can you throw a bit more light on, on the role that Eric Nave played at Frumel? Yeah, of course. Um, Eric was uh, very enthusiastic. He was, a, he was an FECB uh, card-carrying member. He believed in sharing intelligence. That's what it was for. He didn't, keep it to, he didn't collect it to keep it. He, he collected it to give to people. And he was uh, of the opinion, and I think most of the people in, in his orbit were, that it didn't matter whose intelligence it was or what ship or army unit or aircraft was transmitting, the information should be provided so that the people in the operational side of things could deal with it. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that you had to keep close to your chest. But we should have, should have pointed out, I'm sorry, that... The, in the United States Navy, there was a war between the communicators and the intelligence people, and the communicators won. So that signals intelligence belonged to communications and not to intelligence. So right. the, Office of, the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington was denied access to information being intercepted by the United States Navy because he wasn't a communicator, was he? So this was the attitude and this was the background that Fabian who I don't think was a very intelligent person, brought to his job. And his belief was his people collecting intelligence for the US Navy, and uh, if it wasn't for anybody else. Eric Nave, on the other hand, uh, said that, well, it's intelligence. It should go to anybody who could use it. So that's point one. Point two, there was a rank difference. Fabian was promoted lieutenant commander, and, and, and Nave was already a commander. But, but as, as Clive's mentioned, um, he was a Brit, and, and, and Fabian had no time at all for the British. None at all. Wouldn't give them the time of day. 
So um, that was point two. Point three was that although Eric had worked uh, with uh, JN25 uh, Code D in Singapore, he hadn't touched it since. Captain Wiley, who was referred to, I think, by Joe Strasick, said, uh, no, no, we, we think that's... <laughs> this is to Nave. We think... I think that's too much, too difficult for you, yeah, Nave having about a breaking thing. And we'll just give you some minor stuff to do. But, of course, as their condition deteriorated markedly, uh, it then became important for the British to recruit anyone who could help with this. And so there, there's, there's information that Nave was receiving... Uh, intercepts and and uh, and tips on breaking into JN25 until the very day before he was sacked, and he was sacked because um, uh, it was the end of ni- October 1942, and it became important to the Americans that they uh, took firm control of this joint organisation. Uh, Fabian had been through the ranks of, of SID and it had sidelined or kicked out people he thought were useless, most of them British, of course, and he had purloined the people from, from they, who he thought were useful. Um, so a number of, the, of the, uh, the, the military personnel were taken in to, under Fabian's wing. The professors and the rest were given the fleet. And so the, the, the organisation was breaking up. Um, Nave's prerogatives as commander, or joint commander of this organisation, were being impinged upon and the American solution was to uh, lean on the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board the Chief of Naval Staff and say get rid of NAVE, we need NAVE out of there and that's what happened so NAVE was uh, told he no longer had a job now um, we know we know in retrospect that in fact uh, as I said he was working right up to the last minute on the codes that were important to the Americans, they weren't so interested in the minor codes as they were called but it's interesting that his work on minor codes it was very important when the Japanese once again changed their codes, uh, which we are supposed to do. It's good cryptographic principles. But that left uh, everyone struggling. But guess what? Naive's people had broken a, a code called JN4, which is a submarine code, uh, and that enabled them to keep track of an awful lot of important things like submarines and what the submarines were doing at the time while they were struggling to re uh, re grasp the the, uh, the 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 new version of JN25. Uh, that was all uh, dismissed by the Americans. They thought that wasn't important, and so now they've got his marching orders. Um, the question then became: This is a British officer in Australia. He's been working on sufferance uh, for the Australian Navy. Uh, the Brits wanted him back. Uh, he, in the meantime, he, he married in in uh, in. Uh, in Singapore, he, he'd married a, a British nurse uh, who was nursing him for his, his tropical sprue condition. And they'd moved to Australia and they had a family. So now the question became, I, I'm really an Australian, although I'm wearing a British uniform, um, I'd want to stay. The question was how? And that became interesting because they, they pointed out that he couldn't work in a tropical area. That No worries, we'll, we'll work him in London. There's no tropics to worry about there. And it became a battle which rose to the various highest levels of the Allied command. Uh, I'm not kidding. General General MacArthur was involved because what Central Bureau, or at least uh, Australian Central Bureau, recognised in NAVE was a terrific ability to break into low-grade codes. Now, 
Low-grade doesn't mean unimportant. It means it's a different form of code. It means it's designed for a different purpose. You can imagine that a, that a communicator sitting in a battleship has a lot of help and a lot of support in using a major code which is difficult to work with and to, to make sure you don't make mistakes in. Whereas if you're um, sitting in an aircraft, a bomber on the way to bomb Darwin, uh, then you don't have a lot of time uh, to work on a difficult code. And that's what a low-grade code is. So it's, it's meant to be of, of, uh, of not, you're not passing vital information because sooner or later the Australians are going to realise that people have dropped bombs on them. But it, so it's transient. The information's transient. It needs to be secure for the time you're actually flying and doing the mission but after that, it doesn't really matter. But if you get that information in advance of the raid, it enables you to put up fighters to prevent it or to oppose it. And that's where the, that's where the problem lay. We didn't have that capability. But they knew because NAVE had been involved in training uh, people for Central Bureau when it was still located in Melbourne, which infuriated Ruby Fabian, of course. Um, they knew he was good at it because he trained most of their people. Uh, so they said, we want NAVE. Um, so everybody went into bat for Nave on this side. Uh, everybody on the other side, the British side, wanted him back, and eventually they co-opted General Douglas MacArthur to send a stiff message to the British saying, "You ain't having him." And so the British agreed. And so Rudy, uh, sorry, uh, Rudy got his way, not for long as it happened, um, but nevertheless, uh, Eric Nave found himself in Brisbane. Uh, which is which is where Central Bureau was set up, and his responsibility was training operators, the the, the field parties, uh, to use the information he provided them to to break uh, low grade codes, codes of immediate operational importance, and to pass them on to the local commanders. So aircraft heading your way will be there in two hours. Get your fighters in the air. Was the sort of stuff they were looking for out of Nave, and he provided. I think we'll pause there. Just, just one point following on from mm. what Ian's saying. Uh, Nave, when he was up at Central Bureau, was training both Australians and Americans in that the Americans, oh, when yeah. they arrived, were trained by Nave for the same reason. Um, and one of them has commented that the best thing that happened to us was that R Fabian and Nave didn't get on. <laughs> It seems to yeah, me good that point. Good, good point. It seems to me that the uh, the successes uh, th that occurred uh, happened almost in spite of the personalities that were involved in this um, in this endeavour. Um, but it was also a very um, technological uh, endeavour. Um, oh, it became huge. Uh, but by the, by the end of the war, the most advanced communication systems the world had ever known were employed by the codebreakers across the world. Mm -hmm. um, amazing uh, advances in technology and in the ability to pass information almost immediately. Almost as soon as the Japanese touched the key, uh, the information was being passed around the world. But succeed they did in the end, and one of the first ones, Joe, um, was a contribution to the Battle of the Coral Sea. Just wondering if you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, but basically in, um, in March 1942, the codebreakers at uh, Frimwell and um, Honolulu uh, basically broke into some messages which referred to an Operation MO and references to attacks on the northeast coast of Australia. Um, and, and so that straight away alerted them to the fact that 
there was an operation being planned in the, in the Coral Sea area. Uh, and as time went on, they intercepted and decrypted further messages which referenced uh, the Japanese carriers, carriers Kaga, Zuikaku, Shokaku, and Shoho. Now, um, Kaga was originally slated to be used uh, to support, support an operation which was an amphibious assault on Port Moresby. But because of damage received she, um, in her deployment into the Indian Ocean area, etc., she had to go back to Japan, so Shokaku and Zuikaku were put in her place. Now, the Americans built up this picture of what was going to happen. So Admiral Nimitz in Honolulu uh, dispatched uh, Admiral Fletcher with the USS Lexington and Yorktown into the Coral Sea area. And so they were in the Coral Sea area and they were able to basically mount a strategic surprise on the Japanese. Um, and halt, prevent the uh, amphibious assault on Port Moresby. Okay. Um, and um, just as a sideline, you may have seen the recent news clippings of uh, the USS um, Lexington, mm. um, yeah, where she sunk in the Coral Sea. But yeah, so the, the provision of that intelligence and the, and the correct interpretation and the acting on it allowed that uh, strategic surprise to occur. After the Battle of the Coral Sea, the intelligence continued and they saw that the Japanese, which had a series of subsequent operations planned, initially delayed and, and then cancelled them. And these subsequent operations were intended to, to cut the sea lines of communications between Australia and continental USA. Mm -hmm. um, now, if, um, just one step beyond that again, the code breakers at Frimmel um, intercepted the first in, uh, intimations of a possible Japanese landing on the north coast of New Guinea in an attempt on Port Moresby from overland, mm -hmm. which of course developed into Kokoda. Thinking about um, Frimmel, um, we've mentioned only a couple of the, the, the senior people involved, but it was of course a much larger um, organisation than that. Um, and as Peter, you mentioned many were from the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. Just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the role that they played in, in actually making the organisation work. Yes, so the timing was actually very uh, propitious because um, uh, as I indicated in um, early 1941, the Royal, Royal Australian Naval, uh, uh, Women's Royal Australian Naval Service was established. Um, and the initial intake went to the, the new communications base at HMAS Harmon on the outskirts of Canberra, as it was then. Um, and so when the need for uh, a large number of communication sailors to go into uh, Frimmel, um, the obvious place to, to look was actually uh, for this new RANS, because there was, uh, although there was uh, initially 14 members of the, of the uh, Women's Emergency uh, um, Communications Corps went into Harman. There was many more um, in that organisation that could be sourced and also from a, a large number of women who were keen to join the Navy. So, uh, so the next intake was to Melbourne and to give you sort of a feel, uh, there was about 500 RANs in, in the, um, who joined during the war about 280 
were communication sailors. So the real uh, emphasis of the RANDs was actually into communications uh, and they became extremely proficient and they were the backbone of the Royal Australian Navy's um, uh, involvement in Frommel. Um, and, uh, and really, if you look at the contribution of the RANDs to the war effort, uh, the big strategic uh, contribution they made was actually in Frommel. Um, now, Joe's done some work. It's, it's hard to unpick how big Frommel is mm. um, from, uh, because of that secrecy it had. And perhaps, Joe, if you want to talk about the, the work you've done to, just to try and get a, a, a grip of how big was Frommel. Yeah. yeah. All right, this, this sort of jumps. But um, again, in, in the context of uh, facilities, if you look at um, a map of Australia, you had Frommel, which was like, located at the uh, Monterey Flats. And that was the administrative and cryptographic heart of the organisation. Um, and attached to that, you had an, an intercept station at Moorabbin, which was southeast Melbourne, jointly run by the USN and the RAN. The RAN personnel there were predominantly RANs. Joe, what, what, what does an intercept station uh, consist of? Well, but basically, it's, it's a radio receiving. Okay. Um, and they, they try to put it in, in, in an electrically neutral area because in, in order to pick up uh, weak signals. Okay. Um, so, you know, there are banks and banks of receivers and the uh, intercept operators are sitting there. Sometimes they've got uh, two sets of, of earpieces listening to two frequencies simultaneously. Um, and they're, they're somewhat supported by the direction finding stations, which if they get a transmission, they'll quickly tell the intercept station what the frequency is. Okay. Um, so, so it's predominantly you, you had large numbers of RANs working in there. Um, so you've got Moorabbin. Harmon in Canberra was an, had an intercept station and a direction finding station. HMAS Magnetic in Townsville was an intercept station run by the RAN. Uh, the USN were uh, establishing in the late uh, 44 in, or early 44 a new intercept station at Cooktown. Uh, the USN were running an intercept station at Adelaide River in Northern Territory. The RAN was running the DF station um, at uh, HMAS Coonawarra, again in the Northern Territory, outside Darwin. Um, the RAN had tried to establish a direction finding station at uh, Northwest Cape, but whilst it was being constructed, a cyclone went through and wiped it out. Uh, so it was never built. And there was the direction finding station at Jandicott, which, even though it came under the auspices of Frumel, generally worked with the British Far East Fleet um, out of Ceylon. Now, that was the physical uh, construct of the organisation. Um, getting numbers of people was pretty hard because unfortunately these guys didn't have the foresight and uh, you know, they'll trouble us poor historians in the future would have. And they didn't leave big charts of numbers. But in the late 44, um, there's a, a recorded number for Frummel being 204, not including USN personnel and intercept operators. Now, this number was given after 160 USN personnel had left Melbourne to go further north. Um, Harmon and Townsville had about 96 personnel, again, predominantly RANs. Moorabbin, 20 uh, RAN personnel. I don't know how many USN. Um, there are no numbers given for the DF stations at uh, Coonawarra or um, Janicott. Um, so, 
if you sort of look at those numbers, you're looking at an organisation that's probably at, at its peak would have been in excess of 600 people okay. um, working all together. And so even though it's the Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne, it's really a national scale organisation. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, but speaking of personnel, I'd just like to add a postscript regards uh, uh, Rudy Fabian. He was eventually posted as the liaison officer, USN liaison officer to the Royal Navy intercept station HMS Anderson in uh, Sri Lanka. Something that neither party would have been keen on. <laughs> <laughs> I also get the impression um, that the, the interception and code-breaking efforts were very, um, very dependent on people and people finding the frequency, following it. So it, it wasn't a um, um, it wasn't a, a uh, an easy process or, or one that could. Um, we talk about hoovering up signals yeah. these days, but at this time it, it wasn't really. Um, it wasn't really a hoovering operation, no. it was much more a very specific... And, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, they knew what roughly what frequencies would be used and what times of the day, um, oh, because of uh, ionospheric conditions, etc., uh, frequencies and ranges changed. And this is where the direction finding stations, as I said, uh, came in handy, because they could, you know, they, they would monitor a frequency or be going through a frequency band and they'd pick up the transmission and they, you know, they'd send the message to the intercept stations you know, giving the frequency and the intercept stations would tune in and start taking down their transmissions. Okay. So, you know, so the DF stations would be important in not just tracking shipping but also pinpointing Cueing communications them. organisations, etc. And as, as Peter said, you know, I mean, the, the RANs were absolutely critical to this. No RANs, no organisation. Okay. Craig, we've mentioned um, uh, that Frumal and, and Central Bureau were, were similar organisations. Um, did they cooperate um, much in, in, uh, in this area and, and what was their relationship? Not like? much. Frosty is the answer to the second part of the question. Uh, largely because of Fabian who always crops up in these things. Uh, Fabian wasn't interested in sharing any of his intelligence, except when he'd get something back. Uh, he was only interested in sharing when there was something in it for him or for Frumel. Um, occasionally, there would be people seconded uh, on short term. I suspect uh, just because there was a need that Central Bureau had some people that could uh, do that. And in the reverse direction, there was a request although I think this was after Fabian left for a couple of people to assist with the, um, that, the army coat books. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was um, the guy who replaced Fabian that said okay for that. Um, the, there were informal contacts. Jack Newman, uh, you can, so there's records of him having had, uh, had dinner with uh, Mick Sanford who was uh, the leading Australian army guy in Central Bureau. Uh, and also Trawick, who was one of the uh, uh, the academics from Sydney University, who jumped ship, uh, as it were, with uh, across to Fabian when the SIB was being uh, disbanded. SIB being the Special Intelligence being, being, yeah, being NAVE's unit uh, until uh, they got rid of it. Uh, so there were informal contacts with the Australians. 
uh, with, with the Americans, I think probably very little because of what we talked about right from the outset, that the Americans in Brisbane were U.S. Army, the Americans in uh, Melbourne were U.S. Navy, and never the twain shall meet, except perhaps on the battlefield. Um, so, yes, very little. That changed after Fabian went a bit, but by then Frimmel was being wound back by the Americans. It was being de-Americanized. Um, for two reasons, I think. One, Washington wanted to, cent Washington, the US Navy and Washington wanted to centralize their activity. This is sort of, and I think this is part of the outcome of the political battle that uh, Ian mentioned between the intelligence and the uh, um, communicators there. Uh, the outcome of that fight was uh, the people who prevailed in Washington wanting to centralize. At the same time, after Midway, the Japanese Navy was less and less effective. Uh, it virtually had lost the war after Midway. Uh, so the naval communications were less crucial to the Allied cause by then. Uh, Frommel made the tactical error, or in fact Fabian made the tactical error, of while MacArthur moved north to Brisbane, then to Hollandia uh, in New Guinea, then to the Philippines, uh, Frimmel stayed in Melbourne and so became more and more distant from the, the cutting edge, if you like, of the Allied cause. Uh, so that didn't help, but the, I, I think the Japanese Navy's communications became by 43, 44 less crucial to the cause. So there are a number of factors um, to reduce the the sort of front end, I suppose, that was coming out of Frimmel. But because of the change of person personnel at the top, there became more cooperation. Uh, Newman had his contacts in uh, Central Bureau. He didn't have to be so circumspect with them, probably with the, the new leadership. In fact, in a short while, he became the leader, so okay. he could call his own shots. Could change. Ian Fennyworth, um, Eric Nave um, eventually had to leave um, Frumel. Can you explain the story for that? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, he was kicked out by the Americans. He was, uh, it was politically expedient for him to go, so he did. What, what, um, what was the, what, and then we managed to retain his services, which was very fortunate. Um, as Craig said, uh, he trained everyone. He, he, he was he's completely agnostic when it came to who he trained. He didn't care as long as they, they could make use of the information. And one of the most important uh, contributions made perhaps to uh, the war in the Pacific at that stage was the interception by uh, the RAAF field unit of the fact that the Japanese were not going to resupply uh, Rabaul anymore. In other words, they're going to let it uh, wither on the vine so uh, MacArthur didn't have to plan an expedition to capture the place, which is just as well. Um, and that was done by, by a field unit uh, trained by Eric Nave. The, uh, the other interesting thing is uh, when, Nay, when uh, MacArthur went to the Philippines, he, he moved all his American troops uh, forward and left the Australians to, to mop up the Japanese. Um, he took the Australian Navy with him, of course. And uh, the other people he took was a group from uh, also Air Force uh, from Central Bureau, who were there to provide air raid warnings of, of Japanese attacks, which, uh, which they did. Had quite a, a torrid time, in fact, in the early fighting in, in uh, the Philippines. 
Um, all these people were trained by, by Eric Nave. Then when the decision was taken to move the uh, headquarters forward, first to Hollandia in, the, in Dutch uh, New Guinea, and then finally when the, they'd beaten the Japanese to, to uh, just north of Manila uh, in, in the Philippines, uh, Eric couldn't go because he still was under this restriction about uh, working in the tropics. So he was left behind to continue the training and to continue working on the codes, but also to write the history. And uh, in the Australian archives down in Melbourne, there's the most uh, detailed history of how Central Bureau came into being, uh, how it worked, who, who did what to whom, and more importantly, perhaps if we ever have to fight a war against the Japanese using World War II codes, uh, he, he made very clear how you break them. Uh, that was his work. So he was, he was left behind, and that was probably uh, appropriate because uh, we'd moved beyond that point. And he was, uh, he was uh, still ill, so he couldn't, he couldn't travel with them. Okay. As a result of that, um, the, the document that came out of Nave's uh, survey at the end, we know much more about what happened in Central Bureau than we know about Frimel. Frimel, we know very little. We, we don't know really who was doing the code breaking okay. there. It's, that wasn't, those records weren't kept. Uh, no one seems to have written a memoir of what the Americans were doing. They're all dead now, so we'll probably never know. Okay. Craig, do you have anything more to add about the conduct of the Philippines campaign? Yes, the, one, one of the significant things for our uh, cryptographic uh, bureaus, MacArthur wanted it to be an American show, the Philippines. The Australians were not part of that and were not intended to be part of that. He had them diverted, uh, I think under protest, to mopping up operations and Borneo. Uh, it was going to be all Americans with a few token Filipinos, with one exception. The, the Air Force um, field units and the Army ones that were attached to Central Bureau, uh, and they had started with Middle Eastern experience and built from that, were clearly far more effective in their work than the equivalent American ones were. Uh, as far as MacArthur was concerned, for that, for getting the advanced information of what the intentions were of the people they were about to invade, he wanted the best. And the best was an Australian unit, so they made the exception. Everyone is American except for the radio field unit, and that will be an Australian unit. They went there in their slouch hats, and they called them the Foreign Legion. <laughs> By 1944, the war is obviously changing considerably. Um, and, and Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne, Frimmel, changed as well. Um, Joe, can you describe what happened in '44? Yeah, um, what happened is the Americans had decided to completely restructure the organisation in the Pacific, the US Navy, and they established what was called Fleet Radio Unit Advance, which was to be uh, established in Guam. And once Guam was secured, the uh, American personnel in Australia were moved up to Guam um, and that left only a, a, a cadre of them, uh, plus the Australians. The Australians continued to work on the minor codes, but as, as we've said before, these, you know, the word minor is a little uh, is a misnomer because they provided important complementary uh, information. Um, now, the Australians also reached out to the Canadians, 
with a view of uh, providing additional um, additional person personnel to help uh, fill out with some of the spaces the Americans left behind. Though by the time those negotiations were completed, uh, the war in the Pacific had ended, and so uh, you know, probable effect, the, which was at this stage under the command of uh, Commander Newman, um, you know, ceased to have a an active function. Despite the the, um, the 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 effective cessation of Frommel, then um, the cooperation went on um, uh, in leaps and bounds, um, and led to the creation of the Five Eyes um, organisation we're a bit more familiar with. In Fennigworth, um, would you like to reflect on on the legacy that Frommel have have provided um, uh, post the war? Um, yeah, with, with pleasure. The, um, all of the Australians involved in whichever organisation it was they worked in were, I think, impressed by what they had achieved, perhaps beyond what their expectations were. But they'd also had the experience of fighting uh, and using this information in an American way. So this is the, really the start of the... Well, not the start, but it is the culmination of the... The, the end for the British influence and, and the Americans are taking that over. And I think, as I mentioned, this, this worldwide communications channel uh, set up was amazing. Um, the, so each left their organisations with a determination that A, we need something like this for our own national defence, and B, wouldn't it be good if we could preserve the skills and capabilities that we've all learned uh, in an organisation uh, which is going to work internationally. Um, the, um, the first cab off the rank were the British, who, you'll recall, back in 1941, thought there wasn't much point having a signals intelligence unit in Australia. They'd suddenly discovered it was very important to have one, and the Australians were pretty good at what they did. Uh, so they sent some high-ranking high people out from GCHQ, as it became... Um, and uh, they suggested to the, to the Australian government, with the enthusiastic support of the veterans, of, of the, the Australian veterans, uh, that the government thinks seriously about this. And the, the Chifley government did agree, and in 1946, uh, a, a Commonwealth organisation using the facilities, resources, skills of the British, the Canadians, um, the New Zealanders and ourselves was set up. But, but this, wasn't, um, this wasn't enough, because clearly... While the British Empire Commonwealth might have its own issues, uh, there was a bigger there was a bigger fight brewing, particularly in Europe with the Soviet Union, and it became necessary to to uh, to ally uh, ourselves with the United States. Now this was done through the British, so it was it was a two by uh, two party agreement with uh, with Australia and the others uh, hang, hangers on uh, through codicils to the agreement. Um, so for some time we were regarded as, you know, again by the Americans as being unimportant, uh, but that changed too, and, and eventually we were admitted to full membership of what is what was called UCUSA, UK-USA agreement, as I mentioned, the two parties, but more recently has become Five Eyes, which has the same World War II allies working together today, basically on the same problem. That's the legacy of the work that was done in Frumel, but more particularly, I suppose, in, in Central Bureau. But it was a coming of age for Australian signals intelligence. Thank you. Um, 
in the studio, um, gentlemen, I might ask you for your, your concluding comments. Um, Craig. With uh, Fromel, although uh, Fabian sequestered the glamour um, code for his fellow Americans, JN25, the, um, the infrastructure was provided by RAM and run by RAM. They were the intercept stations picking up the signals and manned increasingly by Australian RANs um, and the accommodation. Uh, so they, they were part of the process even if they didn't get the, uh, the glamour end of it. They were actually much more effective than Fabian ever allowed himself to believe because of uh, the codes that Nave and his colleagues were working on right from the start, the JN4, the submarine code that Ian has mentioned, uh, picking up the, the traffic from the mandated territories, which is what they were encouraged to do in the first place. Um, and Nave became, who had been the pioneer, also trained the next generation as they came in at the beginning of the war. Uh, initially with that part that he could do it uh, in Fromel and then on a much bigger scale because he trained Australians and Americans at Central Bureau. So he's very much the father of not only World War II but everything that's flowed from it uh, that we just described. Okay. John? Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd reiterate uh, Ian's comments regards the uh, post-war development. But I'll probably just expand it a little bit more in the context of what we've been talking about in naval and military signals to say that there was also a diplomatic element to this in that um, Frimmel was initially, uh, the SIB was initially intercepting diplomatic traffic as well, uh, particularly out of South America. Uh, and that eventually became a separate organisation under the Australian Army. So that when the post-war organisation was created, that function also moved in to the um, to the new organisation, so it you know, encompassed all three of the um, signals intelligence organisations. But yes, the, I think the, the legacy um, from Frumel, Central Bureau, and the um, diplomatic section, I think it's diplomatic section D, I think it was called. Um, yeah, he's he's basically uh, in, in Russell Hill in the um, buildings of uh, ASD. The, the unit with the academics that Fabian didn't want. <laughs> Peter Jones. Yeah, I'll just reflect on the people. Uh, um, and it's interesting in this story that uh, you had this contribution by a group of people uh, in, amongst those officers who are commander, captain rank, um, Eric Nave, Rupert Long, who Barbara Winter accurately in her biography called the Intrigue Master, um, who had a, had a vision, uh, Jack Newman, um, Florence McKenzie, who helped create the, the, the RANDs, they had a, a tremendous impact in this whole area, which had a, uh, really made a, a major contribution to, uh, to the war effort. And of course, the, the RANDs who largely manned Frimmel and also the men who also participated in, in that, that organisation. But of course, because of secrecy and how much that was really not talked about, uh, for you know, two generations or so, their contribution hasn't really been fully recognised, um, and I think we should remember them. I agree. Ian Fennigworth, any final thoughts? No, I, I think that um, 
it would be great if Australian people could recognise the contribution made uh, to the Second World War by, by Australian code breaking. It, it's, I suppose, naturally wrapped in secrecy to some extent, but there's hardly any secrecy about it now. What they achieved and what they delivered to the operational forces to enable them to win the war uh, was way out of proportion to the numbers involved. It would be nice to have that acknowledged, which so seldom happens these days. Hopefully we've gone some way to uh, acknowledging it today and to providing an account of the, uh, the activities of uh, these people and their, their contribution to the war. Craig Colley, Joe Streisack, Peter Jones, Ian Fennigworth, thank you very much uh, for, for your account today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation. For more stories about Australia's Navy, just search for Naval Studies Group in your podcast app.